1: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10
0: for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. This is Patrice Peck.
1: Patrice, welcome back. Welcome, Patrice.
0: Thanks, y'all.
1: Patrice, you've been busy. (laughs) Yeah, Patrice, you had another piece in the New York Times. Self-care for black journalists. We'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, you got to keep these coming. <laughs>
0: thank you. Uh,
1: and thank you for uh, returning to the show this week. Who did you uh, set up an interview with?
0: This week, I spoke with Raquel Willis. Um, she is a black trans woman journalist, activist, national organizer. Um, she wears many, many hats. She actually got her start um, after going to the University of Georgia, um, getting a degree in journalism, She started in local news in Georgia um, and then eventually she went to the Transgender Law Center where she did some really great work and then eventually became executive editor of Out Magazine, which was really amazing. Um, She worked with a dynamic group of people while there and now she's currently the director of communications for the Miss Foundation for Women.
1: And she's so interesting because you see her quoted as an expert or an advocate but also you see her byline still doing mm-hmm. journalism mm-hmm. yeah there's a there's an incredible part of this interview towards the end where she talks about how for a while those like labels were uh, sort of tough to navigate you know like whether she was a journalist or an activist or an organizer and now she just sort of doesn't care like she's she's just doing her work and it encompasses all of those things um, which is pretty powerful
0: and before we get to the interview I just wanted to point out, You know, again, I am a follower, listener of the Long Form Podcast, and I can't recall having listened to an interview with um, a trans journalist who was out, especially not a Black trans journalist, and I thought that it would be very, very important to include a voice like Raquel's that has this intersectional perspective included in the long-form archives.
1: Thank you for that addition to the, uh, the ever-swelling long-form archives.
0: Of course, of course.
1: We're, uh, we're thrilled to have her on the show and thrilled to have you hosting it. Thanks. Speaking of the uh, swelling archive of long form podcast episodes, they're all brought to you with the support of MailChimp, who make this whole thing possible and have for many years. Thanks to MailChimp. And now here's Patrice with Raquel Willis.
0: Raquel, thank you so much for joining us on Longform Podcast. I've been dying to get you on here. Yes.
2: Hi, Patrice. It's so great to be on.
0: <laughs> so let the people know where you're from and where Raquel grew up.
2: So I consider myself a Southern girl through and through. Even though I live in Brooklyn now, I am forever from Augusta, Georgia. So not Atlanta, Georgia, Augusta, <laughs> get it you know, right. which is a, <laughs> get it right. It's its own specific flavor. Mm-hmm. And I really carry those Southern roots with me everywhere I go. I grew up in a fairly traditional Black Southern family. We were also Catholic. So there were layers of traditionalism, layers of respectability in some ways. So obviously growing up as a Black budding queer Later to understand herself as transgender person, yeah, it was a it was a bit of a journey <laughs> to <laughs> say the least.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, what drew you to journalism? So I
2: loved writing like poetry and different things growing up. I wasn't one of those people who was like consistent with it. I'm a typical Gemini in that way. Like, <laughs> um, but then when I got to be I don't know, maybe about 13 or 14, I started writing songs. And so I actually have been a big music fan, a big fan of lyricism for most of my life. And I envisioned myself at one point as being a songwriter. So, So that was kind of the organic start. Then when I got to the later years of high school, I was the yearbook nerd. You know, I I went to a fine arts high school and so everyone had their thing. And my interest really went into yearbook. I was Mm -hmm. so into this idea of creating this like object that captured a year in our lives. You know, Mm -hmm. like that was so interesting to me and I didn't understand why other people didn't think that that was interesting, but in the same way and then eventually I was the editor-in-chief my senior year. So it was a fun experience and it was nice managing a team, collaborating with folks. And I was like, well, I guess I like this. Like, I'm not going to be this doctor that my grandma is always telling me I'm going to be. <laughs> and so I was like, well, how do I do that? And so I ended up going to the University of Georgia and I started out double majoring in graphic design and magazine journalism specifically, because I was so interested in the visual elements in conjunction with the verbal elements. And so, yeah, so that was kind of the origin story of the journalism career.
0: (laughs) Got it. Got it. And so what year did you graduate? And I ask because I'm 32 and I graduated from undergrad in 2009. And that was like during the last recession. And it was hella difficult to get a magazine job. And so, yeah, what year did you graduate college? And what were your career aspirations as like a graduating senior?
2: Yeah. So I graduated college in 2013. Um, which is kind of wild to think about because it hasn't even been you know, a full 10 years of a proper career. Obviously, like, journalism folks do stuff before they even get out of school. But, you know, my senior year was interesting because I was trying to finish my degree, of course. I had dropped graphic design because I wasn't... I don't know. I I just wasn't as great of a technical artist. Mm -hmm. Focused on the journalism degree, but I also picked up a minor in women's studies. Now folks Mm. would say gender studies, but women's studies. And that really shifted a lot of things for me as well, because when I started the gender studies courses and started learning about systems of oppression, finding language Mm. around my own identity as a trans person in college, like it opened my eyes to the ways that these systems of oppression also color our experience in in journalism, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the idea of objectivity, you know, more people talk about that now, but Mm -hmm. then I was very hyper aware of the fact that I was being asked in many ways to strip myself of my Blackness, of my Mm -hmm. womanhood, of my queerness, my transness, Mm -hmm. um, to be seen as unbiased, Mm -hmm. um, which is cute. And, you know, that is a particular way of writing, but I'm not unbiased, You know, I believe in black power. I believe Mm -hmm. in the power of trans people and queer people. I am a feminist Mm -hmm. and I knew I was going to have a career at some point that touched on those things. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, I had like many folks, huge aspirations. I was like, I'm going to go to New York right away. I'm going to have this fabulous job like Wilhelmina Slater and Ugly Betty. (laughs) Working at a magazine. Yes. You know, I think the kind of assumption would be, particularly as a woman or, and as a queer person, that I would want to work at somewhere like Vogue or work in a fashion space. But, you know, my favorite magazine in high school was actually Wired. Yeah, I was so into Wired. And obviously, like, the visual components of it and just, like, the stories were always, like, cutting edge. And, I mean, they're still... Mm -hmm. doing great stuff. Wired doesn't get enough love to to this day, (laughs) (laughs) to this day. So, so yeah. So I had these dreams of going to New York and my sister at that time lived in New York. And so I went to visit her for like two weeks right after my senior year concluded. And I went to interview and, you know, you don't know anything about trying to find a job. You know, most people don't, right? Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. maybe that's because I was Black, queer, and trans, and, like, I didn't have typical kind of mentorship. But I was interviewing, you know, I interviewed at this place, and it was definitely a pyramid scheme. It was supposed to be about marketing, Mm because I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll open myself up to that. Yeah. But it definitely was not a real thing. It was wild, I interviewed at this small boutique hair company. I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll do marketing or like get some social media chops with them. Didn't get any of those. It was just, I was looking on Craigslist, you know, like all of the places. I applied probably to, you know, 1,000 places Mm -hmm. through that last semester of my college experience. And nowhere was biting. Part of it was because I was—I didn't live already in New York and I had focused on trying to get to New York and I didn't understand those dynamics that they wanted you to live there already. Yeah. So I freelanced for a bit. I came back to Georgia. I was lucky that I had a friend who allowed me to stay with them so I didn't have to go back to Augusta, Georgia. I was like, gotcha. if I go back to Augusta, I'm going to get sucked into the vortex and mm. and stay and be a hometown hero, which is great, you yeah. know, but I knew I didn't want to be in Augusta. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew that there was more I needed to do. Mm-hmm. So eventually I got my first what I consider real job as a news reporter in Monroe, Georgia.
0: Yeah. at the Walton
2: Tribune.
0: <laughs> Amazing. And so, you know, yeah. that's the journey you just described as like a rising senior and then a graduated senior, recent college grad rather, who was looking to get into a journalism career. Like, I think that is, is very familiar, especially in New York City. And and as you had mentioned, that's, you know, coming from the South. That's not discussed enough, sort of how this industry is really seemingly dominated by a lot of coastal region folks. And yeah, like that journey you just described, like, it's hella familiar. And and you said you graduated 2013? 2013, yeah. So at that point, the industry was already in that volatile state of trying to figure out what the business models are, like a lot of publications are folding. Like what was any of that addressed in your um, college education in terms of the state of journalism industry? No, I mean,
2: I knew obviously that we were in the afterglow in some ways of the downturn in 2008, you know, so I I knew going into college because I graduated high school in 2009 that something was going on, right? But, I, you know, I think that I... I mean, I came from a middle-class background. My parents had, you know, degrees on degrees. Like, my mom had a doctorate in education. So I was privileged in a sense of, like, I was like, oh, I'll be fine. Mm -hmm. You know, like, by the time I get out of college, it'll be fine. And it wasn't, you know? Mm -hmm. So they didn't really address... The economics of the journalism industry when I was in school, I don't feel like I had as much support as I needed mm. in college. And obviously, like, there were organizations like NABJ, right? The National Association of Black Journalists. But to be honest, I was a trans woman, you know, very early in my transition. Mm-hmm. I didn't see that as an outlet, you know? Mm-hmm. it was Mm -hmm. and still is a very respectable space as most Black institutions still are, unfortunately. And Mm -hmm. so I didn't necessarily see that as a space that I could like find support. I always felt like I had to figure it out on my
0: own. Let's get into your, your entry level, your first journalism job. Talk to me Mm -hmm. about that in Monroe, Georgia. Monroe,
2: Georgia. So, I remember
0: so vividly
2: going to interview for that job. I obviously had like my little, you know, physical copy of my resume, my little folder. I um, was dressed up in a very like traditionally feminine way, Mm -hmm. you know, like at least by Southern standards. I just I had full on face. Yep. My hair was like curled at that point because it was. Feel relax. Okay. I um had on like a skirt and like this like jewel tone top. Okay. and heels. Mm. You know, again it was like a different part of my transition where mm. I felt like I had to fit more of these stereotypical ideas of femininity, but I also knew that I was going to have to go back into the closet. Mm. So I went and talked to the guy who would become, you know, my editor and boss, Mm -hmm. got the job and I was not out as queer or trans the whole Mm,
0: time. you. You
2: know, I don't want to be presumptuous and say no one knew, but like, I really don't think people knew that I was trans because there are just little things that I picked up, you know, just mm. little things they would say. You know, yeah. one time there was a woman who came in who had a pretty deep voice and the women on the staff were, like, you know, cackling and making jokes about her. Mm. And I was like, oh, mm-hmm. wow, okay. This is what happens behind the scenes when y'all think that yep. a trans person isn't around. Yeah, Comments from male a male editor, you know, mm. who made a joke about the T about trannies and like mm-hmm. all of this stuff. And I was like, oh, this is how it, it goes behind yeah. the scenes. Yeah. So I saw the transphobia I from a stealth perspective, or I was, you know, not out about my identity. That's what we would call stealth in our community. Okay. So that was interesting yeah. to say the least. Yeah. Um, it also was a very conservative environment, mm-hmm. as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. So this was, the proto-Trump era of the Tea Party era, Republicans. Okay. So the in between Sarah Palin and Trump, that kind of like outrageous white supremacist conservative mindset was being stoked. And yeah. so I witnessed a lot of that in small town Georgia as it was happening. Mm. I had a weekly column. I would try my darndest to talk about social justice issues. I was hitting them with different things each week. Mm -hmm. I wrote a column inspired in some part by Chimamanda Adichie called, Mm. We Should All Be Feminists. Mm. And put that out there, got, you know, hate letters from old men saying that I was young and naive and bringing my liberal college talk to the town. I would write some about the early Iteration of the Black Lives Matter movement mm-hmm. um, or movement for Black Lives wrote about LGBTQ issues. Yeah. You know, and this was all in 2013, right? right. So that's interesting to me because I, I went back and read some of those things recently and I was like, wow, you know, like I guess for those days, like yeah. I was considered radical and in that space. Mm-hmm. I was considered radical and now everyone is woke, right? But back then, even just a few years ago, people would be like, what you on? What's, what's wrong with you? Like,
0: Mm. why
2: are you saying all this? You know, it seemed so
0: fringe. Yeah. Ta- ta- how were you feeling around that point? Because like I said, you know, that's your first job. Did you feel like there was a lot of representation that you could sort of model yourself after within the newsroom? Like, you sound like you were just a very bold, courageous, young journalist. I f- felt very isolated. Mm. You know, I, I didn't really have many
2: folks that I looked up to at that point as like an example, because again, I think journalism was still such a space of the old guard of this archaic idea of objectivity Mm. of, you know, it was my understanding, you know, that many black journalists didn't want to write about blackness because Mm they didn't want to be seen as less than a real journalist, right? Mm. Because there's this idea that you, you're you inherently going to be biased or basically be an activist if you write about yeah. experiences too close to your own. You know, I think maybe people were just starting to write things like personal essays in a, regularly, but the law of the land was not, as particularly on the internet, was yeah. not personal essays yet. You know, and then particularly as a trans journalist, you know, Janet Mock had just been open about her experience in Marie Claire yep. around, I would say, maybe 2012, 2013. So, like, I was in the midst of my journalism education. Yeah. So that was eye opening, of course. Yes. But she didn't have the career that she would go on to have yet. Right. Right, So it was still an early period for trans representation on anything. Like Orange is the New Black came out the week that I, one of the weeks that I was in New York job searching. okay. And I remember I started binge watching it that week that I was on my job search. So it it was all so new. And I think what's interesting is people, because I'm so young, people don't realize that I actually was starting my career before this bubble hit.
0: Yes. Okay. So,
2: so there's a way that I think a lot of experiences of folks gets erased mm. because, you know, that's the way the visibility works, right? Is that it eclipses the struggles, the experiences that are already mm. happening mm. in a way, and so while I, I look up to them you know, there was also like so much that I was doing on my own that I was seeking and finding on my own before they brought the cultural relevance that our community needed.
0: Mm. So when exactly did you transition? And what was that like interviewing in terms of like, were you nervous? And, you know, because I noticed you mentioned like, you remember specifically like how your hair was done, like what outfit you were wearing. And so- let us into your shoes real quick. So, you know, I, to be
2: honest, I think that this is often beyond the imagination for a lot of cisgender people or mm-hmm. people who are not trans. Mm-hmm. But I feel like I was transitioning in a sense pretty much all of my life. Yeah. You know, like I never kind of fit these restrictive ideas of who I was supposed to be gender-wise. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of... A social transition for me. I started my transition in college, you Mm -hmm. know, in a formal sense, right? Where I was like coming out to people as trans. and, And I knew that I needed to have a certain part of my transition done before I was on the job market. Because I I just knew that that was going to be near impossible. Okay. So my last year was really spent getting documents changed Mm. to make sure they reflected my name and gender experience and identity. It was starting a medical transition. Yeah. So, I mean, it really was in those years of college that I was, in some ways, fast-tracking it so that I could survive after I graduated. Mm. And I I won't say fast-tracking, right? Like, I took time, like, went to therapy like a lot of people do, had a lot of hard conversations with family, all of that stuff. But I was trying to have a bulk of that out of the way so that I could actually have a career. Yeah. Yeah. Because that that takes that that is your job, yeah. you know. Yes. For a lot of trans people trying to secure access to transition in the ways they may want to, mm. is a job. Mm-hmm. So I was privileged in a lot of ways to be able to go about my transition in that way and plan it in a sense, so that I could just work afterwards.
0: Wow. Okay. So. We are in Monroe. And what was your position while you were there in that newsroom? I was a staff reporter. Staff reporter, okay. So you said you had your columns. Did you also have to do like any local beats, national beats? Oh, yeah.
2: So the breakdown of the editorial staff I was the only woman, I was the only person of color and it was a staff an editorial staff at least of four my boss was the editor there was another staff reporter and there was a sports editor okay and they were all white men i will say i think my editor saw the importance of having me in in that space i will say that he was a great editor he pushed me i learned a lot from him but i I will say, I don't think that the culture at that point understood the importance of diversifying the newsroom. And so I still, in some ways, felt disposable. Mm. And then the women who worked at the newspaper were all in marketing.
0: Mm. Wow.
2: Or in circulation. And so... You know, I will say, I think I got love from the women in the marketing team because I think it was interesting to them to see, oh, a woman can also be a writer and like create the content and like people would listen to her voice. Um, And I was actually tapped in my last few months to help develop the county's first women's Magazine. Wow. We were thinking it was going to be like a quarterly women's, like, you know, magazine. It was like, oh, it was going to be on newspaper, but it was going to be one of those, like, really just delving into women's experiences in the county. Yeah. Because, you know, I was open as a feminist. So, like, that was a thing. Every now and then there would be women who would come up at different events and be like, you're so brave. Thank you for saying what you said. I mean, white women. (laughs) Like, yes. Like, it was so interesting. Um, And then we ended up getting a new publisher Mm. through the course of us starting the developing of that magazine. And they brought in a man who scrapped it
1: Mm. and
2: wrapped the newspaper in what was called a sports wrapper, right? So he completely ditched that project and then decided we were going to center sports.
0: Mm.
2: And that really was my that was the final straw. And I was like, I got to get out of this space. I got to be in a space where I can be my full self. Yeah. And so that was what eventually pushed me to move to Atlanta.
0: So you moved to Atlanta. Um, did you, did you get a new job? Like what happened? I, when I moved to Atlanta,
2: I actually stayed with an aunt. Okay. So that was great. And I got a job at HowStuffWorks.com, which Then was starting to like build kind of this podcast empire. Mm -hmm. Like they already had a bunch of podcasts. Like they saw the potential of podcasting early and invested in it. I was not a podcaster. Mm. I was a digital publisher. So I worked on the website on really kind of publishing content. I wrote maybe one or two things while I was there, but it was mostly like, publishing content. While I was there, there was the death by suicide of Leela Alcorn, a young trans girl who ended up publishing a letter about how she didn't see a future for herself as a trans person. And... She said it to be published on Tumblr after she died. Mm. It was like one of those, by the time you read this kind of experiences. That broke something in me. And it also just reminded me of the death of Elon Nettles, a Black trans woman at the hands of a Black cisgender man in twenty. 13, I believe, if I'm I'm remembering the years correctly. And I was just realizing that, oh, you know, like I was seeing the pattern of violence from all ends, right? Of like the psychological violence, the social violence, the physical violence, the state violence that trans folks of color were experiencing. Mm -hmm. And when Leela died, that was kind of like the final thing. And... I was teary eyed, I published this uh, YouTube video, Mm -hmm. just like talking about how we need folks to be better. You know, we need cis folks to move up and fight on behalf of trans people because we can't do this alone and no child should feel like they can't find hope in our society. I was still stealth, you know? So, like, I was still in this mode of, like, well, I'll just stay in the closet. But I wasn't as, like, stringent about it in this new job. I was like, well, if it comes to a point where I have to come out, I will, and we'll just let the chips fall where they may. Yeah. After I published that video, it went, I guess, semi-viral. It was, Mm -hmm. like, 4,000... Views, which, you know, the barometer of virality at that time was so much smaller than it is now. You know, like people get like millions and millions of views. But so that was a thing, and BBC picked it up. Okay. And they were like, we want to interview you for this global radio show. And I was like, what? You know, I wasn't really, like, excited. Mm. I was, like, scared. Yeah, yeah. Because I knew I was going to do it partly because one of the things I had said in the video was, like, I couldn't be silent anymore. Mm. So I knew I had to hold myself accountable to that. But I was frightened. Of
0: course, yeah. And I
2: told my sister, who's older, and she was like, that's exciting. So when are you going to tell your boss? And I was like, do I have to? <laughs> she was like, yeah. And I was like, okay. So I told my boss. Then she told her boss. And they were on board with it. They were like, you definitely have to do it. It was not an issue yeah. that I was trans. We didn't even go into any more detail. They didn't ask any like wild questions. Yeah. It just was what it was. Mm. So I did their interview. And then from there, I would just became more outspoken on social media. I was starting to tap in more to community organizing. Okay. Not as a journalist, mm-hmm. like really literally joining the efforts because I felt like I needed to be putting my energy into the movement, yeah. you know, into keeping us alive. And I knew there weren't many folks fighting for Black trans folks in the South, you know? Yeah, yeah. Or at least I did, I wasn't connected to the larger network that I am now. Yeah. And then I pitched this podcast to the folks there and was like, we need to be having a conversation about what's happening in the movement for black lives, what's happening in terms of LGBTQ issues. Yeah. I would love to do a podcast on these things. Now, granted, I will say maybe I didn't articulate the vision well enough, but one of the things that I was told by a black cis woman who was my supervisor was, oh, well, we've already got a feminist podcast. They're already talking about things. Mm. And I was like, you have, and this is no shade to them because they did great work and still do great work. They had a podcast that was hosted by two white women. Mm. And no shade, but they weren't going to be able to carry conversations around race Mm -hmm. and LGBTQ plus issues and -hmm. and different things like that in the way that I could. It was very disheartening to have my Black supervisor squash that and not see the importance of having those conversations. So that was one straw. And then the next straw was the death of another black person at the hands of the police. And I remember mm. it just like trending on Twitter. And yeah. like we were, you know how it is for black folks. Like we have this kind of mass mourning when that happened, yep. especially then as we were connecting in new ways via social media. Yep. And I just remember going to work surrounded most of our white people, but there, you know, there was that my black supervisor, Nobody was phased. Mm. It was business as usual. And I'm over here. I can't think about anything. Yeah. But are people being killed by police? Yeah. And I was like, oh, I got to get out of here. Yeah. I've got to be putting my energy and every part of my energy into what's happening on the ground. So I started applying to... LGBTQ plus organizations. I didn't even envision, I guess, mostly Black organizations being ready to hire me as a trans woman. Yeah. So the LGBTQ plus kind of nonprofit industrial complex (laughs) seemed like the fit. I applied to all types of places. I won't name them, but I will say that I was applying for, like, comms positions, press secretary positions, all types of things, storytelling positions. And I was just getting met with resistance, you know, by these very white spaces. Yeah, they're national LGBTQ plus organizations that turned me down. Mm. And it's so interesting now because these are now the same organizations who want to pick my brain on everything. Yep. Still won't pay me, mm. you know, for my labor, right? But they mm. want to pick my brain. And then I found Trans Law Center, Transgender Law Center, which was based on the West Coast. And I came in as a comms associate. And I moved from Atlanta, you know, to Oakland, California. yeah. My first time living outside of Georgia at 25 years old. Wow. And it was on. And so that, you know, had a very formative experience there as well. During that time, that was when I spoke at the National Women's March. Mm-hmm. I was continuing to be outspoken on social media. Mm-hmm. I shifted from the calm space, which I felt like I was being blocked from doing more,
0: mm-hmm.
2: into nas- a national organizing space. Okay. Um, So I was a national organizer for the organization, but I was still freelance writing, Mm. doing like, you know, press and all types of things, you know. And in a sense, you know, Mm -hmm. though I was never acknowledged as this or compensated as this, I was in some ways a spokesperson for the organization, Mm.
0: Mm -hmm. you
2: know. And and it's so interesting because I, I feel like I'm at a point in my career now where I can like say these things. Yes. Like, this is the labor that I was doing as a Black trans woman. Yes. That you weren't fully acknowledging. Yes. That you were benefiting from. And, and this is in these various spaces, but you weren't acknowledging before this kind of era of reckoning where everyone is, like, talking about systems of oppression. Um, So while I was at TLC, I pitched this project focused on the healing justice of Black trans women in the South
0: mm-hmm.
2: and focused on how we can kind of alleviate some of the problems of these murders in various communities. So it was really based on political education, leadership building, and healing justice for Black trans women. Okay, And so that was a powerful experience, just connecting with other Black trans women in the South in a deeper way. Yeah. And honoring Black trans power, you know, like, I think that was kind of the start of me seeing our power in a different way. Yeah, yeah. Not seeing our power as something that needed to be given to us by cis people, but seeing it as something that we needed to foster within ourselves. While I was there, I got proposition to be the executive editor of out magazine
0: yes yes
2: by philip Picardi of teen vogue Mm -hmm. fame Mm -hmm. and who is a dear friend now and such a source of encouragement and such a model of like what allies should be Mm. you know of what it means to be a white ally what it means to be a cis gay man who's an ally to you know a black trans woman And so he asked me, you know, would I do this? And I was like, ah, I got to think about it. And I thought about it. At that point, I I got a fellowship with the Jack Jones Literary Arts folks based in L.A. under Kima Jones, who's phenomenal. And I had like two weeks, you know, that I was starting to work on my book in a deeper way Mm. that I had been working on ongoing. Okay, And then... I was like, okay, yeah, I guess I'm doing this. Yeah. And so I moved from Oakland, California to New York in December 2018, and it was on. Yes. And so I had this job, this leadership position at a legacy LGBTQ plus publication that had historically been white, cisgender, gay men. Yep. Again, bourgeois, wealthy, you know, had a certain particular body, had a limited worldview. And I was there to support Philip Picardy and this new team of folks of all different backgrounds, racially, ethnically, gender-wise, sexuality-wise, on giving this magazine the facelift Anita. We just, we had a great time. I mean, the first issue that I really got to work on was the Mothers and Daughters of the Movement cover story that had Tourmaline, who the world is really starting to recognize now, who we've known in community for so long. I mean, she really can be credited with pushing the culture to pivot around centering Black and Brown trans women. Mm. Like she did a lot of that historian work around Marsha P. Yes. Johnson yep. and Sylvia Rivera, that uncovering of that work and their lives before it was like in vogue to do that. Yep. And we had Miss Major, we had Barbara Smith, legendary Black feminist. We had Charlene Carruthers, an emerging legend in her own right, who was the first ED of BYP 100. Okay. And we had Alicia Garza, you know? Yep. One of the mothers of the movement for Black Lives. So that was our first issue. Yep, I remember that. That was written and photographed and styled by women Mm. and non-binary femmes ever in the history of the publication. Yes. And the cover was shot by Mickalene Thomas. Mm -hmm. Janet Mock was the guest editor, honey. I Mm -hmm. mean, it it was stacked. Yep. And it was just oh, such, it was a powerful experience. One of my favorite issues to this day. And so that kind of set the tone for that next year. You know, we explored beauty in a different way. We explored art in a different way. Mm -hmm. And then the cover story that I worked on deeply was the Trans Obituaries Project. Yes, yes. Which was, we delved into the story of Leilene Polanco-Extravaganza, who was killed in Riker's custody. Well, died in Riker's custody, I should say. And really sparked a new movement around ending solitary confinement, which we just learned this week, New York is moving forward with halting solitary confinement, with a large part due to her family, her sister, Melania, who has spoken out so beautifully and become a great advocate for the trans community. And then I was so blessed to be able to capture it and give an investigative deep dive for the trans obituaries project and I coupled it with a second part that was the obituaries that all the trans women of color and black trans women who were lost in 2019 deserved yes after interviewing upwards of 40 folks who knew them closely, which was not an easy experience. I mean, there were many times I was crying on the phone, you know, trying to put on my best journalist hat (laughs) and continue the interview. And I couldn't set off the people that I was interviewing. You know, I had to be sensitive to being that strong voice that they could share these ideas with. And then the third part was a 13-point framework on how we can end the epidemic of violence. Mm. Community sourced from experts who are Black and Brown, trans and queer folks. So that was my proudest moment at OUT was being able to get the Trans Obituaries Project created And we, you know, are nominated for a GLAAD Media Award so everyone can cross their fingers and toes that maybe, you know, we'll get some good news. But I, throughout my career in journalism, it's been important for me to bring my community with me, elevate my community with me. Yes, I'm an activist. Yes, I'm a journalist. Yes, I'm a writer. Yes, I'm a storyteller. Yes, I'm an editor. I don't care anymore. None of those things are at odds with each other. And particularly when I think about our legacy as Black writers and editors and journalists, when I think about this epidemic of violence against Black trans women and the importance of shining a light on it, I see it. In similar ways to how Ida B. Wells was shining a light on the lynchings of Black people Mm -hmm. in the South and in the United States, you know, more than a century ago. And that's a part of my legacy, you know, or or I'm a part of her legacy, I should say. (laughs) Angela Davis shining the light on these systems of oppression. Mm -hmm. Um, I said Patricia Hill Collins. People like Barbara Smith, Barbara Ransby. So that journalistic, scholarly part of my spiritual ancestry is there in the organizing history. You know, Marsha P. Johnson wasn't a writer as far as we know, but that's who I lean on. Sylvia Rivera wasn't a writer as far as we know, but that's who I lean on. Miss Major is who I lean on. You know, and that all informs my work. And I have no qualms at this point in my career about owning that and admitting that.
0: Mm, definitely. So it's interesting because The New York Times, I think they have an ongoing their obituary project called Overlooked, where, you know, they're going back to all those people whose lives were overlooked by the obituary section in this um, household legacy publication. And so talk to me a bit about the significance of obituaries, particularly, you know, in regards to the Black trans community.
2: Yeah. So already, you know, I think obituaries, and particularly for the Black community, it's like your love letter Mm. to the person that is gone. You know, I have experienced the writing of obituaries for my father, for my grandmothers, for her aunts. And I don't take that process lightly. I mean, those are pieces written with so much intentionality, typically, and so much love, and vulnerability in possibly the most vulnerable states that the people riding them have Mm. ever been in. So it's important. And the unfortunate truth is that so many trans people, but particularly Black trans people, aren't loved and respected after death and particularly during that process. In the last two weeks, there have been reports in media and from community of at least six Black trans women who have been murdered. And most of them were initially misgendered, meaning they were identified as male by police and media. Many of them were called what we call a dead name which is, you know, or their birth name, the name that they didn't actually choose for themselves. And so that kind of disrespect, even after experiencing some of the most brutal acts of violence a person can experience, Mm -hmm. is demoralizing, you know? So I wanted to talk with people who knew these women closely. I wanted to ask questions about what their dreams and aspirations were, what their likes and hobbies were, what brought them joy, what made them smile, what were their favorite songs. Mm. The joyful things. And I heard powerful testimonies. I heard from a man who had just gotten engaged to one of the women about a month before she was murdered. They had been together for a few years, loved each other deeply. They had a dog together. And, you know, she was murdered. His fiance was murdered. You know, that's a love story. I heard about a mom whose child was murdered in a different state and, you know, how she missed their laughter and wanted to see, you know, what they were going to become in life. Yeah. There was another young woman named Bailey Reeves who was, I believe, 17 years old. She was just about to go off to college. She was killed. So... I talked with her sister and her cousin about, you know, her vibrant personality and how she was trying to figure out what she was going to do with her life. So these are not the stories that we hear about black trans people. No. And with the obituaries, I both wanted to honor their humanity, but I also wanted to signal to other black trans people that, they deserve respect Mm -hmm. that their stories matter no matter what happens and that there will be people fighting for you no matter what happens. And then I also just wanted to signal to the rest of the world that you're missing our stories and it shouldn't be after our death that you hear those stories. Mm-hmm. You should be honoring our power now.
0: Mm. Thank you. Well, I love that project personally. Okay. Thank so, you. <laughs> it's interesting that you're saying you are, you're a multi-hyphenate, right? Because especially now today, we're seeing these conversations crop up around objectivity and how that's, you know, has always been sort of like a main tenant of journalism, and journalism, as we all know, in the industry today was established by predominantly white male people and institutions, right? But the black press, um, which came up in the early 1800s, that came up directly as a response to the lack of inclusion of black stories and news in historically white media and as a way to counter the few times we were covered to counter those negative stereotypes, right? So there has always been this sort of mission to uplift Black communities, I think, you know, in the legacy of Black journalists in, in this country, right? And you had said in an interview that you had, at one point, you were using objectivity as a mask to not be yourself. Can you talk a little bit about that moment when you were using it as to mask yourself, objectivity? Yeah, I
2: think that when I was in journalism school, you know, this tenet of objectivity reigned supreme. And in many ways, it was a warning to not be too Black, mm. to not be too much of a woman, to not be too queer, to not be too low income to not be too much of anything Mm. because then that would compromise your ability to tell an unbiased story. Mm. But the flaw in that, one of the flaws is that our industry is not unbiased. Mm -hmm. Just as you said, it is a white supremacist industry. It was started in large part, you know, and I, I'm hyper aware of this as a, a Black journalist who came from the South who went to an institution that is named after an unabashed white supremacist.
0: Mm.
2: That they molded this in this way. And it's easy for a person who has the dominant experience and dominant lens to think that anything else that deviates from that is being extra or... uh being fringe. And so we have to grapple with that in our industry, that the white supremacy, the respectability, the elitism is a problem. The other thing too is I don't buy that me owning my marginalized experiences, every move that I make or in every story that I write makes me necessarily biased. Yeah, Because in fact... Black people have always had to have more facts than white people to survive. Queer people Mm -hmm. have always had to have Mm -hmm. more facts than straight people to survive in our everyday lives. And particularly when we're making cases about what's happening in our communities and the people that we know and we're familiar with, we know that we have to have more facts than the average person to even be taken seriously, to even be heard. But yes. also because our people's lives are on the line. So I don't buy that me owning all of my experiences and my identities as a journalist and as a writer means that I'm not invested in facts because we mm-hmm. see what a factless <laughs> you know, news ecosystem can do to wreak havoc. And white supremacy and classism and homophobia and the patriarchy allowed people who claim to be stating facts to make it to the White House, to make it to the highest positions in the land without checking them because they gave them a benefit of the doubt because of these unchecked systems of oppression. Mm. And so now a lot of these institutions are playing catch up because they weren't listening to the voices of marginalized people all along the way who had to have more facts and understood and had the forethought that that could happen.
0: Yes. And it's just as you pointed out, like Ida B. Wells, she created a lot of techniques that are used in investigative journalism today. It doesn't get more journalistic than that. You know what I'm saying? And Ida B. Wells was clearly
2: an abolitionist Mm. of those times Mm
0: -hmm.
2: and a suffragist. I mean, Mm. she was very involved with the early feminist movement. I mean, there was no way for her to not be. She couldn't vote. Right. Her people have been property. Yep. So how dare I sit up in a journalism class as a black queer trans woman being told by mostly white cishet men with means Mm -hmm. that my identity should not be central to my work. Mm. Get out
0: of here. That day is over. (laughs) So what... What do you want to say to like your journalism peers who are listening right now, A, and B, what would you like to say to any black trans journalist or aspiring journalist listening? To my peers,
2: I would just say that we have to rethink our idea of leadership rethink our idea of storytelling you know as the media we shouldn't be seeing ourselves as the owners and the gatekeepers of people's stories
0: Mm.
2: we actually need to be democratizing this experience sharing the tools of storytelling with other folks folks are hungry you know to tell their own stories and may not always have the tools but we see it on social media every day You know, folks will share the rawest stuff and it's all shot weird and typos galore, but it resonates because it's real and it's authentic and it's vulnerable and it's coming to this from the source. And so we've got to eliminate as many intermediaries as possible and get to the source and support the source when it comes to black trans people and advocating particularly for us, I think that we need to be investing in Black trans storytellers and writers and editors and photographers and videographers, stylists, all types of things. You know, we're everywhere. And you need us in your spaces. You know, Mm -hmm. you need our perspectives and you need to be in conversation with Black trans people before you share our stories or call yourself Mm. sharing our stories because there are so many journalists who don't know, you know, that there's a problem with how they frame our stories. There's a problem with only focusing on the tragic narratives. There's a problem with only speaking about us in terms of like how police reports speak about us, particularly Mm -hmm. when we're murdered or experiencing violence, you know, it's not okay to dead name or misgender somebody, but if you're not having regular communication with black trans people, yeah, you're not going to do that. So figure that out for black trans folks, lean on other black trans folks and other folks that, you know, understand our experiences and our lens and our humanity. There are plenty of journalists that are so lauded by folks who never speak on queerness or transness. They'll speak on everything else, especially Black journalists. Yes, yes, that's real. You know, you can't do any projects about Blackness and not talk about Black, queer, and trans people, especially Mm -hmm. in this time. You can't be having these magazine covers that talk about the victims of police brutality and not talk about Tony McDade and other Black trans folks who've been yes. murdered by police. And Black cis people have done that recently. Multiple magazine covers that give names and don't say anything about trans people. So that's kind of my like charge is that we invest in... Black trans leaders and Black trans storytellers and writers. And we extend opportunities to folks who are on their come up. Because I I want to leave the door open for the next people. I don't want to continue to be a first or an only. That's not when we're our most powerful. We're our most powerful when we're many.
0: Mm. Thank you so much, Raquel. This has been Amazing. Yes, thank you. This is great. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Patrice Peck. The show is hosted by Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff, and Max Linsky. Janelle Pfeiffer is the editor, and Julianne Parker is the intern. Thanks to MailChimp for sponsoring the show, and thanks so much to Raquel Willis. You are truly an inspiration.
1: You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. First thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts.